0: The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Recently, we've had a chance to speak with the directors of several of Netflix's Emmy-nominated documentaries. We talked to Andrew Rossi about the Andy Warhol Diaries. Cootie Simmons and Chike Oza told us about The Making of Genius, a Kanye trilogy. And most recently, Felicity Morris gave us the backstory to the Tinder swindler. Check out these conversations in our feed and watch these documentaries, now available on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson and welcome to Top Docs. Today we're talking to Alex Pritz, Director of The Territory. The Territory had its world premiere at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival, where it won the Audience Award in the World Cinema Documentary Category, as well as a World Cinema Documentary Special Jury Award for Documentary Craft. Alex Pritz is a New York City-based director and cinematographer. He co-directed, shot, and edited the documentary short My Dear Kyrgyzstan. He worked as a cinematographer on the feature documentary The First Wave by Matt Heineman, and as a cinematographer and field producer on When Lambs Become Lions. Alex is co-founder with Will Miller of Documist, a production company based in New York City and Toronto. The Territory is Alex's feature documentary debut. The Territory is a really impressive film, incredibly engaging, and all the more impressive because it's Alex Fritz's first time as a feature documentary director. Because of the topic, which focuses on the indigenous Uru, Wow Wow people who live on protected indigenous land in the state of Rondonia in the Brazilian Amazon, I wanted to focus a lot on trust in my conversation with Alex. How did he come to the story? How did he build trust with the environmental activist, Nadina Bandera? And then most important, how did he gain the trust of the Uru and their leadership? And that was not something that came quickly or easily, and only through a lot of conversation and eventually developing a mutual understanding and respect, and the Uru realizing how through this collaboration with a documentary filmmaker, they could use media and technology to benefit their people and play a role in helping to protect the Amazon. Besides the seriousness and commitment that Alex showed through this process of developing trust, another very impressive aspect of his filmmaking is the way Alex presents multiple and conflicting points of view. Because besides the Uru, he's also following farmers and illegal settlers in the Amazon who are actively involved in the encroaching deforestation that is devastating this landscape and the Uru's way of life, if not their very survival. I mentioned at the top that the film won a special jury award at Sundance for documentary craft, and we did talk about a couple of aspects of craft, such as raising the stakes and foreshadowing and how the film's cinematography, sound design, musical score, and editing style contribute to those narrative strategies. The film, which is being distributed by National Geographic Documentary Films, is now in theaters, so catch it on the big screen if you can. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Twitter at Top Docs Pod. And now my conversation with Alex Pritz, director of The Territory. Alex Pritz, welcome to Top Docs.
1: Thanks. Glad to be here.
0: Can you give us a brief log line of the film?
1: The Territory is a film about indigenous resistance to land invasions in the Brazilian Amazon.
0: So Alex, you're a New York City-based filmmaker, far from the indigenous territory of the Amazon rainforest. How did you come to this story and become introduced to the uru ao Wow people?
1: I reached out. It started from me reading about Nadina's work, the activist in our film, and just feeling really inspired by her dedication to environmental protection and her dedication against all odds. I mean, she's working in an area that had 78% of people vote for Bolsonaro. So she is, you know, not a popular figure in her hometown and yet she persists with this really difficult work. And I just felt really moved by her and her dedication of spirit and eventually reached out to her during the election campaigns in Brazil, thinking, look, your work, if it's already difficult, it's got to become 10 times more difficult if this guy wins. So let's start a conversation and flew down to Brazil, met her, and from there, just kept tugging at the thread.
0: So it sounds like this was a project that you kind of bootstrapped yourself, at least at the beginning. Is that the case? Oh,
1: yeah. We bootstrapped it all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was my first film we wrote hundreds of grant applications, begged, borrowed, pleaded for money and support anywhere we could get it, and just hustled our way through until we got into Sundance. And now it's a National Geographic film, which is amazing and I means so many people are going to see it and lots more resources behind it. It's been a really fun journey.
0: You mentioned reaching out to Nadina and meeting with her. Obviously, outsiders can play a very negative role in the community. You're an outsider. She has to kind of vet you and you have to earn her trust. So can you tell us how that happened?
1: Gaining trust with the three different kind of major character groups was a different process, a different strategy, different everything for all three of them. With Nadinha, I think just coming down, spending time with her, we talked for days on end when I first arrived. Began working really soon with Gabriel Ushida, Brazilian producer, who was very close with Nadinha. I think the fact that I didn't show up with a lot of resources, she also respected that in a way too. It was like. I don't have money for a car. Can I ride in the back of your car as you're going out and doing your work? I couldn't dictate what was happening in her life at all in those first couple development weeks. I was just there with a notebook and a small camera riding along, trying to genuinely learn and listen. And I think she was excited for that also because she does get some media play and journalists come down and often they're on a tight schedule. They've got a budget. Okay, we need these shots. Let's go get these. Obviously, that interferes with her ability to actually do her work. And I came in as the exact opposite of that. Like, you know, ignore me, basically. And let's talk when you are got some off time. And Nadina loves to talk as well. She's happy to have anybody ready to listen.
0: So she's been working with the Uru for many, many years. And I think she's the only, quote unquote, outsider we see who's working with them. How did she initially gain their trust?
1: Nadina for 40 years, I think she's been working with the Ruao community since even before first contact with the Brazilian state. So her original work with them, without them knowing about it, was trying to keep the Brazilian state from initiating that first contact. And that forced assimilation process, because she'd seen what happens to other Indigenous groups when that forced contact happens. She was really a proponent of when an Indigenous group wants to remain in voluntary isolation, respecting that and letting them continue to live in voluntary isolation. And then with first contact, the disease and violence that came, she was right there from day one, trying to help the community navigate this new world that they were part of. She's like a mother to many kids. She's known b the young protagonist in our film from the day he was born. You'd have to ask her about the intricacies of how she gained trust, but I think her work speaks for itself that she's really put in decades of work to try to help these communities.
0: And to clarify, we see her going into an office. Is she part of an NGO?
1: Yeah. Nadine runs an NGO called Kenning Day that she founded herself. Canning Day supports a couple dozen different indigenous communities with direct support in Hondonia.
0: So one more layer of trust, which is between you and the Uru. Can you talk about first spending time with them and embarking on this film about and with
1: them? That was a very different process from Nadine I was introduced to the Uruwau through Nadinha. You see in the film, there's an invasion that happens on their territory shortly after Bolsonaro is elected, and Nadinha races down to the territory to try to help support that. That was actually my first moment of introduction to the community, was in this moment of crisis, just following Nadinia as she went down and tried to help raise the alarm about what was happening. Afterwards, we regrouped and talked a lot about it, talked about the Uruwau, their history, And I said, I'd love to go down and meet them properly, introduce myself. And that began this really long, slow process of trying to get to know each other. Tons of suspicion, rightly so, skepticism, distrust of me and my ideas of film as a concept. Most of the elders in the Urubaba community have never seen a feature film. And so trying to describe what it is I do... Why I think it's important what it's capable of in a positive sense, but also what it costs in terms of what you're giving up, your privacy, all sorts of things. Come with a documentary film and then also having your story portrayed out in the media, especially for a group that has had really negative, unfair, stereotyped portrayals of themselves in the media by people who look like me and behave like me and culturally are very familiar to me. And so, yeah, really long, slow discussions. One of the things that I I mentioned sometimes that just because it left such an impression on me was when I first had some of these conversations, there was also a linguist there in the community who was trying to help record the Uruguay language, which is Tupi Kawahiva, language that's spoken by something in the low thousands of people left on earth. Most of the elders only speak Tupi Kawahiva and this linguist was trying, you know, charitably to write down the language in order to help preserve it. So it could be taught in schools and the next generation could speak this same language. Everything happens by consensus in the Uru wow. So you had representatives of the six different villages there, and everybody has to agree unanimously that something is a good idea before it goes forwards. So I was able to watch this process happen with the linguist before I engaged in any of this myself. And the elders said, no, 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 no. Like, we we like what you're trying to do, but you are not able to write down our language because we know what happens when white people write down our things, then they own them. And, you know, we can't pay to speak our own language. So hell no, you're not writing this down in your little book. And for me, that was just such an important thing to watch that conversation happen because so much had been taken and extracted and exploited from this community by people who looked like me, who came from outside. And I think began to realize in that moment how important this idea of ownership over the story, over narrative was going to be for this community if we were going to try to embark on this together. So the next development trip, I said, okay, how are we going to approach this? How are we going to have these conversations with the community? And I brought a small camcorder with me and the next time I came, pass the camera around and let other people interview me, ask me about my life, ask me why I'm here, ask me what I think is going on, and try to just level the playing field as much as we could in terms of those power dynamics that happen when somebody shows up with a camera and they're the one asking the questions. And then talk about editing and talk about how documentary film is edited and you can shape and sculpt people's perceptions of an event or an idea and all the power and, that comes with that. And then also all the trust that they would be placing in me if they were going to, let a team of people that I would assemble be the ones in charge of crafting this narrative that involved their perspective. And so that process took months of conversations. Once we felt like we'd kind of laid the foundation of common understanding of what a film is, what it's capable of, what's involved in making it, what is the downside to making it, then it felt like we were prepared to have a real conversation about, okay, are you guys interested in this? And luckily the answer was yes. So we we started filming.
0: As you began to shoot and continue to collaborate with the Uru, did you talk to them about possibly showing them some footage along the way and some cuts of the film?
1: Yeah, it was different with different people. Nadina said, I don't want to see any footage until the end. (laughs) Go finish it and then show me the final thing. With the Uruwau, we talked about character arcs, we talked about scenes. I didn't really edit too much as I went, aside from some development materials, but we showed them what we had as we went. When we shifted the production model and they began shooting themselves, we worked with them to take some of their footage that they'd shot and repackage it as a short film that they produced and shot themselves and helped them sell that to a news outlet. So... There was a lot of back and forth the whole way through. We did have to keep a bit of a firewall. The impetus and the idea to reach out to these farmers and the opposing networks of people that were invading their land came from Bittete and Nadinha, who said, all these journalists come here, they make the same reports, they go out to their competing news outlets, but they all feel pretty similar. They take up a lot of our time and nothing really feels like it's changing that much for us. Go talk to the people that are causing this destruction and violence because it's not us. Like The conflict is emanating from these other groups and they'll talk to you because you're American. And there's some implicit trust and even admiration for America in these farmers groups. Once that process began and we started filming with multiple sides of this active conflict, we couldn't show people footage of the other side. And that had to be really clear with everybody. Okay, Alex is leaving. He's going to be offline for two weeks we will see you again in two weeks. In that time period, we're not going to be sharing locations or footage or anything like that. And that was just a safety decision.
0: Let's go ahead and talk about the shooting that you did with the other major characters in the film. We have Sergio, who's described as a farm worker, and Martins, who's a settler. You shoot with both of them independently. I was very curious about that process of shooting with all these groups independently, And not only not sharing the footage, but not sharing the knowledge of what they were up to and where they were doing it. So can you talk about that process and how you kept from going schizophrenic?
1: (laughs) A great producing team keeps you from going crazy. Yeah, it was really difficult once we got into this kind of multi-pronged approach in earnest. For a while, we were just following the Uruwau and Nadinia. And then when we decided to branch out and found this association of Rio Bonito, they were also very skeptical to start. They felt maligned by the media. Like these reporters came in, they got what they wanted and they made everybody out to be these conflict hungry criminals. And that's not how they saw themselves. They saw themselves as these pioneering heroes, these virtuous people going out and creating something out of nothing, doing the dirty work that built the country that everybody is so proud of now. We came in and basically said, look, we're filming with multiple sides of this story, but we think your perspective is really important. We don't want to just film with the people defending the forest. And we want to hear what you have to say. That wavered at times, they, they grew more or less suspicious. The most important thing for us was that we were never misconstruing what we were doing. We never wanted to place ourselves or our team in a position where they were lying to anybody, both for ethical and moral reasons, but also just pure safety. If we were caught to be misrepresenting ourselves, it would get really dangerous for us. And so that meant not sharing too much information. When I was out filming with the invaders, I wouldn't be able to tell some of the other teams where I was or what I was doing for fear that if they were asked, then they might have to say, and that could be unfairly sharing information or placing other people in danger. So we had a kind of security focal point who would decide on a need-to-know basis who gets what information at any point in time. But it was also just a lot of early conversations about what we were doing, why we were doing it, so that everybody felt like it was above board.
0: It strikes me that a situation that may have complicated that greatly occurs when Ari, who is the head of the surveillance team for the Uru, is killed, murdered. Obviously, the question is who did it and could it be a settler? Could it be an invader? That must have put you in a very, very difficult position.
1: Ari's death was by far lowest and most difficult point of making this film. I think we all questioned whether it was worth it we knew this was a conflict. We knew there were serious risks for everybody, but that obviously brought it home in a totally different way when somebody that personally you've been filming with who's your brother or your son is killed and it shook everybody, the whole film team, the community. The one thing geographically is that there are six Uruwau villages and the village that Ari was killed outside of is on the southeastern side of their territory. Their territory is three times the size, of the state of Delaware. It's it's huge. It's 6,000 square miles. And so there are dozens of different associations that all have their eyes on a different chunk of this land. Some are trying to chew their way in from the outside. Some, like Rio Benito, have drawn a map that places them right in the middle of the territory. And so the farmers' networks that we were filming with... We said, we don't want to be filming with a group that is too close to the villages where this is happening. That feels combustible in a really bad, volatile way. And so the people that we were filming with were coming into the territory from the northwestern side, hundreds of miles away. And so we never thought that maybe somebody we had been filming with or was associated with these groups might have been involved in the murder. But the idea that it was an invader or somebody who was working against. The Uruwa was, yeah, I think a huge possibility. And thankfully, they actually recently arrested who they think was his killer and he's in jail now. So we are hoping and praying that can provide some measure of closure for the community.
0: To give a bit of background, can you talk about when and why the Brazilian government established the Uru's indigenous territory and to what extent it's been enforced over the years?
1: So the Uruau, their territory is federally demarcated indigenous land. It has the highest levels of protection that indigenous land can have legally in Brazil. And that's part of the reason why it matters so much what happens to this territory because it's enshrined in the constitution. Brazil got a new constitution and all of the indigenous land that have been demarcated prior to that new constitution is essentially written into the constitution as a right that indigenous people have to this land. There are other indigenous territories that are more legally vulnerable than theirs, but if lines are able to be redrawn or land title is given within the Uruwao territory, that is as big an affront legally in terms of the precedent would set as any that could exist in Brazil. And so that's part of the reason why Nadinha says what happens to the Uruguay is a test case for what happens to the rest of Brazil and the rest of the Amazon.
0: And certainly under Bolsonaro, it seems like there's pretty lax enforcement of the territory's borders, but I'm wondering even before him, what's the precedent for actually protecting the sanctity of the territory?
1: It depends what perspective you take. From the Uruao's perspective, from the moment the Portuguese arrived, their land has been diminished and taken from them, stolen. And, And now they're left with a much smaller territory than they had just 50 years prior. Bolsonaro did two things. One cut the brake cords on any of these people that would be going out and doing this illegal activity by slashing the budgets of enforcement agencies, environmental protection, all of that was really diminished. And at the same time, a lot of the social programs that had come in to help these poor, marginalized farmers were being undermined as well. And so any chance you'd had at, you know, sustainable agroforestry or, or any of these other ways of making a living as a farmer had been diminished as well. And so that paved the way for a lot of people to go out and do this dangerous, dirty, violent work of colonizing new land and eventually selling it back to these big mega farmers that will conglomerate the land into a fazenda, a big ranch, and use it for pasture or soy, which will feed the cows that then get exported to the United States and Europe.
0: So when we see Sergio and his association and feel some measure of empathy for them, because as he describes himself, he has spent his whole life working other people's land. So he's poor and he wants some pathway to own a piece of land himself. I think we empathize with that, but also we recognize that he's doing something illegal and wrong. My question is, in a bigger sense, what does Sergio's story represent about the lack of opportunities that poor rural Brazilians have to own land and the intransigent problems of land distribution or redistribution in Brazil?
1: Great question. Really wonderful question. Sergio represents so much about this situation. That's part of the reason I was really drawn to him. In one sense, Sergio is a victim of the same forces that are plundering indigenous territory. These big beef and cattle and soy operations that are gobbling up land, automating all of their systems, using heavy fertilizer inputs that people like Sergio can't afford. That pushes him to the margins, doesn't leave uh, an equal distribution of the existing private property such that people like him can support through subsistence agriculture. Sergio is also at the mercy of climate change. And he knows that. Sergio references climate change as a reason that he has to go out and get new land. Sergio hates spraying pesticides on these fields. He knows it's slowly killing him to be breathing in all these toxic fumes all the time. But it's the only way he knows how to make money is spraying these really harmful chemicals on the fields of wealthy landowners. He resents that. He doesn't like that. And he speaks about land in these disposable terms. He has to go out and get fresh land because all the land around him has been used up, meaning that it's been so heavily farmed as a monoculture that the only way to get anything from it is either to use it as pasture, let grass grow on it for cows, or to put such heavy fertilizer inputs that it makes it financially untenable for him. And so he's in this really interesting situation where he is perpetrating the type of acts that put him in this situation in the first place. What he's doing is exacerbating climate change. What he's doing is feeding the machinery of these big mega farms that have put him in this undesirable position in the first place, but he feels like it's his best option. And an interesting thing about these farmers associations, they couch themselves in really populist terms. It's a thousand families. Look at all the good that could happen if we are able to bequeath this town with an official title That's why they try to build a church and a school and everything first, so that they can become incorporated as a new town. It won't become a town. It will very quickly be sold back to these same mega farmers that are pushing these guys out. Into the forest in the first place. They have bylaws within their associations that say nobody can sell their land within two, three, five years, whatever it is. And they do that in order to sell themselves to politicians as a genuine populist movement. Because if a politician incorporates a new town or city, they've got a new voting block in perpetuity. They've just given themselves a new constituency out of nothing. But after three, five, however many years it is in their bylaws, All of that land will be sold back to these big mega ranchers. Nadine brings it up at one point and she says, look, they portray themselves as poor farmers needing to feed their families. But if you follow the money, there are much bigger forces at play financing these operations.
0: So it's the government that will step in and sell that land to the big corporations or who will sell it?
1: They will sell it themselves. They'll sell it directly to these big mega fazendas.
0: And Um, they can't hold out and say, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to stick with our thousand families.
1: They could. Yeah, but I think a lot of them see this as a ticket to the middle class. They don't want to be subsistence farmers forever. They'd rather have 40 head of cattle and use that as a bank account that you can get loans and build and advance up in the economic ladder.
0: So even though Sergio himself harbors this dream, he's being naive because the other members of the association are going to basically outvote him and opt to sell out.
1: Yes. Sergio is leading an association and he's a very good front man for this association because of his story. But he knows that there are already people out there in the land, chopping and burning without having the title yet. And he lets that happen in part because better to ask forgiveness than permission, but also because this unruly group of farmers that he's got banded together for this purpose, he can't control all of them, essentially.
0: So that brings us to Martins, who is a go-it-alone type. And we see him clearing the land, burning fires, building this temporary house, doing all these things. Can you talk about how he's situated in the film vis-a-vis Sergio and his association and the Uru? And also a follow-up, which I'll give you now, which is, do the Uru view Martin's and his small crew any differently than they see Sergio and his association?
1: Martin's represents, as you said, this kind of renegade, go it alone type of mentality. He doesn't care so much what is legal or illegal because he believes he has a divine right to this land. He feels entitled to this land and he feels like he deserves it because he's working it. And that's all that should matter. That supersedes whatever the law says about whose land is what. Sergio is trying to rewrite the law in order to make what is currently illegal, legal. And he's more by the books in that sense, a little more cerebral, a little more focused on the legal aspects. But Martin says this raw energy that I think a lot of people in rural Brazil have, especially in the Amazon, which I feel is kind of an echo, a parallel of the same energy that moved America westward. You know, these ideas of manifest destiny, of biblical rights, the idea that inevitably this land is going to become private property. And so why not have it become my private property as opposed to yours? The idea of a blank map that there could possibly be such a thing as a blank map, and that by colonizing new land, you're bringing progress and civilization. All of these are old ideas. (laughs) These are not new ideas. And it was really interesting to see them playing out in real time in Brazil, another colonial state, a colonial project like America, And I think whereas we've sort of tried to sweep it under the rug or move past any of these types of conversations ourselves, the way that people like Martins idolize America and admire the American West, and you see it in their cowboy hats and their paraphernalia, all of it shows us that these colonial ideas are still alive and well in the world today and playing out in real time in Brazil right now.
0: So I want to talk a bit about your filmmaking, which I think is quite fabulous. Specifically, there's two things that I see throughout the film that I think are really incredibly well done. One is that you're constantly showing us the stakes being raised. And obviously, these are real events, so the stakes were being raised. But can you talk about how you incorporated that visually and with sound into the narrative of the film?
1: That was really how it felt the whole time. There was constantly this, okay, that can't happen. And then whatever it was would happen and it would, you know, just continue to go up to 11 in a sense. I think it's sound design was a huge part of it for us, both the score and the sound design. I knew we wanted to try to build that in really early. I began thinking about sound and the music and how we were going to approach this because it's such a vibrant environment acoustically. Being in the forest is a full-on sensory experience. And then walking through these deforested fields, you feel the absence of sound. You feel the absence of life, the way that wind moves through those types of areas when there aren't trees, or you can focus on a lone bird in the distance wanted to bring all of that texture into the sound design and the score and try to find a way for it to blend really seamlessly and worked with this fantastic composer katia mihalova who came with me to brazil and met all the characters recorded sounds in the environment so when you hear you know beatete out on surveillance there's this rhythmic doom dum, and that's actually the twang of an uruwau bow and arrow going doom and all these small elements that she was able to bring in to blend the sounds of the environment with the score a little bit. But also I think just having Katya there to be able to create her own emotional connection to the different characters and be able to think about story arcs and the structure of the film through sound helped us use that to raise the stakes in a way as well. It's a super ambitious score. We've got like electronic music, Western twangy guitar music, uh, indigenous sounds, classical strings. Like we've got everything. It doesn't feel like it should all fit together in the same film, but because Katy was able to have this connection with all the different people in it, she could kind of channel their motivations and their desires into a unique set of sounds for each individual storyline so that when you land in a new environment, you know, okay, I think I'm with Sergio now. Before you see Sergio or anything else, wanted people to be able to understand, okay, we're with this side of the story or we're with this side of the story from those establishing shots onwards.
0: Related to that, and I'm sure you use some of the same techniques, foreshadowing is also something that you do throughout the film. It's extremely effective. I never felt like you were sort of hammering me over the head with it, but it's there. So can you talk about how foreshadowing was used?
1: Everything happens on, on repeat, in a sense there. And so it was really in terms of the edit, it was about finding the right moments. Okay, this is when we're going to bring this beat in. How can we pull something from just a little bit earlier out in a way that isn't going to give anything away, but that will hint at what's to come. A big one for us was technology and B2T's use of technology. We felt it as we were filming B2T's growing interest in media and technology. And of course, we were involved in that in a certain sense in terms of handing over production. And so finding the balance, there in the edit felt like a a real tightrope walk. We saved that drone shot. It was a drone shot maybe nine minutes into the film where Bichita and Nadina take a drone up and you see for the first time what this deforestation looks like. And we really wanted to put some drone shots in earlier to give you context and get you situated in the land. We decided to hold any aerial shots so you're just kind of at eye level up until that first reveal when they pull up. And so it was also a matter of restraint and not using things because we had it, but trying to think about what the effect would be if we waited until something could land with its maximum potential.
0: So Bitate becomes the leader during your production. He's only 18, going on 19. He takes the job because the elders say he should take the job. And he is clearly an extraordinary young man. I'm just wondering, when this was taking place and you were watching these events unfold, what were your thoughts about how so much was going to ride on his shoulders?
1: Oh my gosh. It's like the weight of the world. I mean, it's a cliche, but he had so much responsibility. This territory that he is protecting, it's the headwaters for these 17 rivers that irrigate the entire state of Rondonia. It's crucially important for the future of the Amazon rainforest, which as we know, is one of the most important buffers against climate change and keeping the guardrails on our entire planet, our ability to live happy healthy lives on this beautiful earth for an 18 year old kid to be the one in charge of this was inconceivable to me how much responsibility he had and he handled it with real grace it, it was hard at times and there were moments where i wish we could have been filming but he was in a, a difficult spot and really didn't want stuff filmed and we tried to respect that as much as we could but yeah he's a remarkable human being visionary leader and those moments when he arrests that invader and also treats them with such kindness and respect you know despite the fact that this is the exact person who's entering with a gun and bullets into your territory it just it blows your mind to think about what type of person what type of character it would take to be able to do those things.
0: I think it's really extraordinary how Beta Tape and the community come up with a solution of sorts for what to do next when they're operating in such a confined strategic space. They can't fight violence with violence because they'll be wiped out. There's very little they can do, but one of the things they hold on to is this idea of using media to tell their story, get it out to the world, and hopefully, I guess, have the world put pressure on the government to protect their land and their way of life. The film ends with Bita tape showing a youngster how to put together a camera and shoot. He says, it's important to record because then you have a weapon. We need the world to see what's happening here. It did leave me wondering, though, is the world seeing what's going on in the territory going to be enough to make a difference in the outcome? And, you know, I think the film itself ends with more footage of man-made destruction of the territory. And so I felt like it was ending on a certainly a cautious note. Can you share what you were feeling when you wrapped the film, as well as how you're feeling now about prospects for the Uru and the rainforest?
1: And that was another thing we really had to balance in the edit. And Carlos Rojas, our editor, did a great job, I think, of threading that needle. In a sense, the Uruguao had a victory over the association of Rio Benito. You know, their media presence contributed to politicians feeling like they didn't want to get involved in something that was getting bad press. They backed away from the association, they lost their political connections, they lost their financial support and Rio Bonito closed. That doesn't mean that the land grabbing stops by any means. The thousand families that were involved in Rio Bonito are going to reincorporate under a new name and go after another chunk of territory, whether it's in the Uruau or another protected area. So it was kind of this winning the battle, still losing the war, but at least we have new tools with which we can fight. And that is a hopeful thing. This is all set against the backdrop of a global war on nature that we are all part of. And so did not want to leave audiences with this cushy sense of, okay, you know, there's nothing left to be done. Great. They've got it from here when really this should be a call to arms for all of us to do what we can. I think the use of technology and technology as a part of this story is hopeful, but technology itself isn't the answer. It's not that drones are going to solve anything. It's that drones are able to help get this message out in a way that people might actually pay attention to it, can reach broader numbers of people. But I think the question for all of us is, are we ready to listen? You know, They can sound the alarm, they can get the message out to all these people, but are we ready to really stop and listen and internalize what's being told to us about respecting the land, living with a sense of humility and gratitude towards the earth rather than a sense of dominion over it or ownership over it in the sense that Martins perceives his role.
0: Well, Alex, it's been a true pleasure to listen to you today and to watch your extraordinary film. If you can tell us what's up next for you.
1: Oh, I am in development on a project about a space program in a developing country.
0: Intriguing. (laughs) (laughs) Look forward to hearing more about that one when the time's right. And lastly, I wanna urge everyone to see The Territory in a Theater. It opens August 19th, incredible visuals, the sound design and the music are amazing. It's an important film and it's so beautifully made. So Alex, congratulations to you
1: and everybody and thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Ken. And yeah, everybody tell your families, tell your friends, August 19th.
0: Do you have a recommendation for a documentary, Hidden Gem?
1: Two films that I loved from the past couple of years. The first is Cusp by two women, Isabelle and Parker. at Sundance, it blew me away from the opening shot. Just really beautiful observational storytelling, layered, nuanced edit. I don't know if it's a hidden gem, if it won an award at Sundance, but I wanted all my friends to see it and I kept shouting it from the rooftops. The other was Mayor by David Osit, film about the mayor of Ramallah, Palestine. Another just beautiful observational film. I felt like I learned more about the Palestinian situation than I did from years of reading news articles.